specifically, what I've titled this message is the missionary heart of God. So we're going to look at Romans 9, 1 to 5, in the light of God's missionary heart towards the lost. God's missionary heart towards the lost. I'm going to read all five verses first, and then we're just going to go verse by verse by verse by verse through them and break them down. So let's read Romans 9, 1 to 5 together. Paul the Apostle, speaking to the church at Rome, says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers or brothers and sisters. That word, their brothers, does not demand maleness. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What a meaty text of Scripture. Paul's basically doing two things in these five verses. First, he's expressing in verses one to three his desire that his people, the Jewish people, of which he is Jewish, would be saved, that they would come to know Jesus. Then, in verses four to five, he unpacks the benefits of being ethnically Jewish historically. That's basically how the text flows. One to three, Paul's desire for his fellow Jews to be saved. Four and five, the benefits or the privileges of being Jewish historically. Now, Paul, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, was uh, a Pharisee, meaning he was of the strictest sect of the Jewish religion. He practiced the laws to a T. In fact, in Philippians, he says, according to legalistic righteousness, I am faultless. Meaning what he could accomplish by his observance of the law, he saw himself as faultless. In addition, in that same Philippians 3 passage, he says, according to zeal, my fire for God, I persecuted the church. I was wanting to stamp out Christianity, or at this time in the first century, it was called the way, the followers of the way. And so Paul was zealous for God, and in his zeal, he thought that he was serving God by trying to destroy the followers of Jesus. And he is saved by God through a dramatic experience. We'll unpack that in just a moment. And he is commissioned by Jesus himself to go to non-Jewish people, Gentiles, and preach the gospel and plant churches and spread the kingdom of God. And so he is a apostle to the Gentiles. The word apostle means sent one. And so there were 12 apostles. There were 12 sent ones sent by Jesus. And Paul is, if you will, the 13th apostle 
but he's the apostle to the Gentiles, specifically commissioned to non-Jewish people. Therefore, as he went around the Mediterranean world planting churches, it was of the accusation that he did not love his fellow Jewish people. In fact, he was anti-Jewish. He spoke against the law. He spoke against Moses. He was against the temple. You'll find this in Acts 20 and 21. And so Paul, perhaps here, is saying, far from the truth is that I dislike my fellow Jews. In fact, he says, I love my fellow Jewish brethren. I desire for them to be saved so much so, he says, I could wish that I were accursed if they could be saved. That's how much I love them. And what that means, we'll get into this, but what that means is I wish I could be cut off from Christ and be punished in hell forever if it would mean the salvation of my Jewish brethren. I could wish that. That's how much I love them. I want them to be saved. Okay, so that's in part what he's doing. He's defending his love for the Jewish people. He's not against the Jewish people. He's not against even, if you will, the Jewish religion because he sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the whole old covenant. And he's instituting a new covenant. And if you know anything about Paul, when he would come into a new area, where would he go first? The synagogue. That's right. He went first to the Jews and he would explain from the Old Testament, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And he would do his Old Testament work proving that Jesus was the Christ, preach the gospel. Some would believe, but many would reject him. And as they rejected him, then he would go to the non-Jewish people or the Gentiles. And a church would be formed in Colossae. A church would be formed in Corinthians. A church would be formed in Thessalonica and so on. And so here in chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, what Paul is going to take up is what about the Jewish people who have rejected their Messiah? And it's a good question. Do you know why it's a good question? Because at the end of Romans 8, we have these verses. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the question is, if you're a thinking person, and if you're Jewish especially, you might think to yourself, well, wait a minute, didn't all God's people in the old covenant get dropped by God because almost none of them believe in Jesus, the Messiah. Man, that's, that's deep. So if, if hardly any of the Jewish people believe and receive the Messiah who was promised to them throughout the old covenant, then what about this declaration of Paul just preceding Romans 9? Does that mean that Christians are also in danger of being dropped by God? What do we do with Jewish unbelief? And so he launches, um, my thinking is, and I don't, I'm not in Paul's head, but I can guess that Paul wrote or had his pen, you know, his dictator, he dictates and, and his, his penner, <laughs> his pen pal uh, writes, 
Who will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing, nothing in all creation. And then immediately what comes to mind is, uh uh-oh, I better address the Jewish problem. And so he launches Romans 9, 10, and 11 to deal with the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And, and trust me, it gets deep. <laughs> so we're, we're, for the next months here, going to be swimming in the deep end of the pool. All right? I hope you're okay with that. What is happening is, what about Jewish rejection? Well, also, in verse, nine, verse 6, which we'll cover next week, Paul says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so we know he's taking up this idea of it's not that God's promise of Messiah and promise of a new kingdom and promise of uh, the kingship not passing from David, it's not as though the promises of God has failed. Why? And then he goes on to argue, because not all Israel is Israel. And we'll unpack that next week, okay? So we know that Romans 9, 1 to 5, he's opening up this idea of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And he's opening up his heart to show his love for the Jewish people. Now, before Paul was a Christian, before the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, before he was born again, as I said earlier, he was murderously intent on destroying Jesus, the church, and his followers. If he could single-handedly wipe out this movement, he would do it himself. We see this in Acts 8, 3, and then moving on to 9, 1 to 2. So Acts 7, one of the seven deacons, Stephen, gets stoned to death for preaching the gospel in a fantastic redemptive historical sermon. And Saul, or Paul, uh, is giving authorization to this stoning, and he's holding the coats of the people doing the killing. And so we pick up after this that Saul, who gets turned into Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house, which at the time, these were house churches, So he's entering house church after house church, dragged off men and women, and committed them to prison. And so Paul has authority from the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body under Rome, and they have given him authority to go in and to nab Christians and bring them to trial. And that's what he's doing. And he's ravaging the church. That's the language. Now, Acts 9, if we were to jump a chapter later... Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, interestingly, his murderous threats, in his mind, he's thinking he's serving God. He imagines himself to be so committed to the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sees this movement of Jesus and his disciples and the church as an affront to the old covenant, and to the law, and to the temple, and to the priesthood, and truly it was, in a sense, because Jesus came to fulfill it all, and Paul was not having that. And so, he's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, aka Christianity, believers in Jesus, 
men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What does bound mean? Think of handcuffs. Think of them hardcore tie straps. Bound, like arrested. He's going out to arrest Christians. And you know what happens, right? Jesus meets him on the road with his crew. And he blinds him with his glory. And as he's laying on the floor, blinded by the glory of God, he knows that he's seeing a vision of God. And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oh, no. (laughs) And so he then is told, go to this house. A man named Ananias will tell you what to do. Jesus then shows up to this man, Ananias, and tells him, there's a man named Saul coming to see you, and I want you to give him a message. And Ananias is not happy about this because he says, isn't this the man who is trying to destroy your people? Isn't he sent with authority from Jerusalem to to arrest and to persecute your people? And he says, listen, he is a chosen instrument of mine. In fact, this is Acts 9.15. The Lord said to him, the him is Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so he is going to be sent primarily to the Gentiles He did speak before Roman governors and officials and Nero himself and shared the gospel. And then also, lastly, he would be sent to the Jews as well. But primarily, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so with all this background, what you can imagine is he is now preaching the name that he once tried to destroy, He is saying that the law of Moses is no longer to be followed as a way to salvation. He's saying that the old covenant is null and void in compared to the new covenant. It's fulfilled. And so because it's fulfilled, it's null. And and he is now saying things like the, the temple and the sacrificial system itself is fulfilled and needless because of Jesus, threatening the entire religious system that God actually instituted with Moses. We'll get to that in the second half of the verse. And so, as I said before, Paul would go as a missionary strategy. He would go into the synagogues in a new area, and he would open up the Old Testament, and he would preach Jesus from the Old Testament. Often he was rejected, and so then he would go, and he would speak to the Gentiles, and they would believe, and a church was started. Let's unpack verses 1 to 3. He feels the need in verse 1 to appeal to his conscience and to the witness of the Holy Spirit of the truthfulness of what he's about to say. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I appeal to Jesus. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. So he, he appeals to three separate authorities. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. My conscience is bound by the Holy Spirit. What? Verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I mean, that, that is an emotional verse right there. Great sorrow 
If something's unceasing, that means it doesn't go away. And it's anguishing him. Where? In the core of his being, his heart. Well, what could be causing you that much pain and distress and unceasing sorrow? I wish, verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What Paul's actually saying here is, I could wish, if this were possible, I love my Jewish brothers and sisters so much that I would suffer under God's wrath in hell forever if it would mean their salvation. Now, a statement like that, we would say, really? And that's why he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is clear by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is real talk. I'm keeping it 100 here, is what he's saying. And here's, here's what he's saying. If I could atone for the sins of my people, I would do it. But you know what? Paul can't save anybody. Even if Paul was to be accursed to hell, his being accursed could not possibly in God's system of justice save one soul. You know why? Because Paul himself was a sinner in need of a savior. He was not a perfect lamb without blemish, without spot. Not only that, he was not eternal, able to satisfy the wrath of God and for many other reasons. And so what he's trying to express is, if I could, though I know I can't, I would. What's interesting here is Paul is expressing, I think, what Jesus expressed in uh, Matthew 23 when he was lamenting and even weeping over Jerusalem. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry before the cross. And he, call, he, he looks out over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. God keeps sending people to warn you to turn back to him, to turn back to him. And you keep killing all the people that God sends. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing now, that verse 37 is really important. What Jesus is saying is, there has been many, many times where I longed like a mother bird gathers her little ones under her wings for protection so that I could save you, so that I could protect you, so that I could shield you. But what was the problem, friends? What does it say? You were not willing Friends, this is the answer to why won't some people come to Jesus? They are not willing. And because they are unwilling to come to Jesus, you know what that also means? They are unable to come to Jesus. And what we're going to see later in chapter 9 is God needs to make us willing or we will not come to him. 
John 3.19 says, men love darkness rather than light and they will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. And then amazingly, when you go to verse 20, it says, paraphrasing, but to those who come into the light, it shows that what has been done has been done by God. In other words, unless God intervenes and breaks in on the unwillingness, on the unbelief, on the resistance, and makes you willing, you will stiff arm Jesus, the gospel, and God's call to you to turn to him to be saved every time. But listen, God is never stiff arming anyone who wants to come to him. There is no one who is saying, God, I want to come to you. And he's saying, no. Gate shut, door locked, no entrance. That's not the picture, friends. The picture is no one wants to come to him, though he's calling and calling and calling. And now you might say, well, where do you get that from? Look, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. What were they sent to do? To call the people back to God, call the people back to God, call the people back to God. And so God, through these people, is calling. And what do they do to the ones calling? They kill them. Turn from your sin and turn to God. We don't like what you're saying, and so we're going to get rid of the messenger. So you can't tell me that God doesn't call to the lost and those in darkness to be saved. He does. The problem is not with God, friends. The problem is with our love for sin and darkness. This is the condition of every human being born in sin, born after Adam. We love the darkness rather than light. And if you know anything about John's gospel, in John's gospel, Jesus is the light. I am the light of the world. Light has come into the world. And so the love of darkness means prefer, I prefer sin over Jesus. And it takes Jesus to break in to that unbelief in order for us to come. Friends, you know what that means? That means if you're believing in Jesus tonight for salvation, do you realize that God has pursued your unwillingness, your hard-hearted stubbornness, and he broke through your stiff neckness and said, I'm going to make you willing. Isn't that beautiful? God pursued you, Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. That you would come to him. That you would resist up until the point where he says, no more resistance. And you stop resisting. And you come to him. And so Jesus here is is lamenting the unbelief. He's lamenting the love of darkness. He knows who he is and how glorious he is. And in that light, he knows how hellish and dark sin and death is. And he is devastated that people would willingly choose death and destruction over glory, life, and light. But that's what we do. 
We love the darkness. We love lies instead of truth. We love temporary pleasure, even if we have to lie and deceive and kill, steal, and destroy to get our fix. I want what I want at the expense of everyone else. And who are you to get in my way? This is the way sin talks. And we listen. And then Jesus breaks in with glorious light. And he makes us hate the things we once loved. And he makes us willing to confess openly our love for the darkness so that we might turn from it. Amen? And if you are believing tonight, friends, God has pursued you. He has made you willing. He has overcome your resistance. You should celebrate. You should praise his glorious grace. See, verse 38, your house is left to you, desolate. In other words, God is not with you. He's not in your system He is not pleased with your religious activities. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The triumphal entry, the song sung at his arrival on the full of a donkey. And so Paul is weeping over the unbelief of Israel, just like Jesus is weeping over the unbelief of Israel. And What I think is beautiful here is this analogy between Paul's struggle for the Jewish people's belief and ironically and amazingly, Jesus' struggle for Jewish unbelief. It's very similar. Did you know that Paul comes to his own, just read the book of Acts, he comes to his own and his own doesn't receive him. Time and time, not only do they not receive him, they seek to kill him over and over. There's plots on his life. He's let down uh, through a basket, a secret operation mission where he snuck out of a city so he wouldn't be killed. There's people lying in the road waiting to kill him and destroy him. There's plots on his life. And yet all he wants to do is see these same people saved to believe. Paul continuously came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own didn't receive him. That should remind you of someone else. Because in John chapter 1, 9 to 13, John says this about Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Clearly, that's Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Jesus is the creator. Yet, the world did not know him. They didn't see that he was the creator. They didn't see that he was God. He came to his own, and his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. Though he was the promised Messiah, though he was being waited on, though he was spoken of every Passover, they did not receive him. But, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who are they? Those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now look at verse 13. Who were born, born again, Not of blood, meaning not humanly speaking, bloodline, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning uh, two two people coming together, husband and wife, we're going to have kids, family planning here, nor of the will of man. This has nothing to do with man's will. This is of God, 
but of God. You see this? And so the idea here is people don't receive him, but those who do is of God. Can you see that at the end of 13 there? Not of human will, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. That's how children come about in God's family. And so Paul, I think, is reflecting here in Romans 9, the heart of Jesus. That Jesus came to his own, his own did not receive him. But there were some for whom God did overcome their resistance, and they did believe. And this is, friends, listen, God's missionary heart. God sent his own son into the world. So if you want to think about it like this, God sends God on a mission to rescue his people. Did you know that when the angel Gabriel was speaking to Joseph in a dream for him to take Mary as his spouse. He said this about Jesus. He said, Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sin. Did you know that this is before Jesus is even born? This is a prophecy from the angel Gabriel to his adopted father, Joseph, that Jesus is going to save his people from their sin. In other words, Jesus is on a mission. What's his mission? To save his people, both Jew and Gentile. And he will accomplish the mission. And then, interestingly, when he is risen, he sends his apostles This is Acts chapter 1. He says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And then after the Holy Spirit comes, I will send you to Jerusalem, home base, then to Samaria, Judea, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, to North America, to Canada, to South America, to Alaska, to Hawaii, the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and out. And this is God's mission. Friends, did you know that God is still on mission today? Saving people from all the corners of the globe. God has people that he is sending. And just like he sent Jesus, Jesus sends Saul. Do you know who Jesus is also sending? Us. We, the church, friends, are the ones who have the power of God unto salvation. Do you know Romans 1.16? Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 10, as we'll get to later, says, how can people believe in the Jesus they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or the gospel. Friends, we have been entrusted, like Paul, with this good news that has the power to save. Now, practically, we must remember 
that we are not the savior of souls. You, as much as you want to, cannot save anybody. As bad as you want it, as much as you pray, as much as you evangelize, God must be at work through your working. That does not excuse you to not share the good news of Jesus. Here in 2022, in my opinion, the Northeast is very, very hard soil. We've shared the gospel for years with family members and friends and out in the community. And you know how much harvest we've seen? Hardly any. And this is the same all across the Northeast. New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Maine, the New England state. It's very hard soil. We're very secular here. We're very unbelieving people. But you know what? The gospel is still the power of God into salvation, and it can break through the hardest of hearts. But you know what we have to do? Friends, we got to share it. Now, this doesn't mean you become, and maybe it does, you know, grow the beard, get the sign, the end is near, you know, and you flip it and walk up and down the street. I wouldn't recommend that. Do people turn and repent from big signs that say, turn and repent, you're headed for hell? Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> could God use that? He could. Do you know how we've seen, personally here in Pittsburgh, do you know how we've seen most people come to faith? By befriending. By having relationship. By getting involved in other people's lives. By not only telling, but displaying. By not only just giving the good news, but giving up of your life as well. You know what we haven't seen? We haven't seen our massive evangelistic campaigns be very fruitful. Now, I'm not saying we should not do massive evangelistic campaigns. I'm not saying we shouldn't do street preaching. I'm not saying we shouldn't go out and hit the streets, share the gospel, pass out tracts, pass out books. We've done all that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But what we've seen most fruit being born from here is by you being in a relationship with another human being, them seeing the love you have for them, and you telling them where this love comes from. Do you know what the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is? It's love. Do you know what Jesus said the world will know that we are his disciples by? Love. They will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Friends, the best way for you, I think, to reach an unbeliever is for you to love them and share the good news with them and hang in there. Sometimes it takes years. And you know what? We don't like that. You know what we like? We like to show up, and I've been a part of these things, you know, I, I'll tell you one story and then I got to move on because we got a lot to do and we got 10 minutes to do it. So real quick, the only story I'll tell, no more stories for you after this. <laughs> when I used to do hip hop, I was a hip hopper, produced a few albums, and I mainly did it through for evangelistic purposes. You know, I was like, I get to do these shows, there's all these unbelievers, I get to be in this, this community and I get to share the gospel. And so I go to this one outdoor event and it was in a park in, I don't know, East Pittsburgh somewhere. And uh, the Gideons were there. 
Now, I'm not knocking the Gideons. I love the Gideons. If there's any Gideons in here, God bless you. Every hotel across North America has Bibles in it because of the Gideons. But the Gideons were there, okay? And, and so I watched these Gideons as we're sharing the gospel through hip-hop. I watched them walking around with their little Bibles, their little Gideon New Testaments, and I would watch them sharing the gospel and giving out these little Bibles. Fantastic, okay? Here's what I didn't so much appreciate. I had brought a friend who I was trying to love and evangelize and witness, and they kind of circled around us. <laughs> they, they like, <laughs> you're not going anywhere. And, and, and one of them said, do you know Jesus? Which I appreciate. That's fantastic. You must not have saw me on stage a minute ago, huh? Because I was telling everyone to repent and believe. <laughs> I, yes, I believe, okay? And he said, well, what Jesus do you believe in? You know, that, good question. Uh, and, and I did the, the old Christian Missionary Alliance. He's the healer, sanctifier, savior, and coming king. Great, what about you? <laughs> and it was the guy with me. And so I, yeah, what about you, man? Like, <laughs> and so they shared the gospel, and, and, and this was so ironic to me. As the guy was sharing the good news, he said, listen, I want you to pray this prayer, and I need you to know that no one is influencing you right now. This is all you, your choice alone. I can't make you. God can't make you. You have to make this choice to pray this prayer and receive forgiveness of sins. And then he prayed, and guess what his prayer was? Oh, God, would you work on this sinner? <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that he can't do that, but now you're asking that he will? Wait a minute. Okay, so that's all background to the point. Here was the point. As they finished with us, they huddled together in my hearing, and the one guy was like, yeah, I got that guy over there, and that guy over there, and that guy over there, and that guy, and they all just started sharing, and then they all left. Is that a bad thing? No, that's not a bad thing. God can use that, and he has used that. You know what's much harder? Having relationships that last more than a two-minute, three-minute conversation. Much harder. Much more painful. Much more costly. Much more emotionally draining. Much more disappointing. And so most people won't do it. I'll have a three-minute conversation with you. Give you a Bible and walk away, and I don't want to ever see you again. Now, again, I'm not knocking the Gideons. That was probably not their heart. But as I watched that day, it was like, yeah, we got them, 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 we got them. No follow-up, no connection to a local church, no relationships. Now, again, can God use that to save people? Answer out loud, can he? Yes, and he has. And so, again, I'm not knocking that. What I'm saying is that's a lot easier then you showing up week after week after week after phone call after phone call after phone call hanging in there with people. Are you willing to put in the work? And Paul was. Man, he hung in there with his churches through thick and thin. In fact, one of the things he talks about that caused him so much trouble was the pressure and anxiety of all the churches. Always on me. All right, let's move on because we don't have much time left. Precisely five minutes. 
Paul is now going to list benefits that the Jewish people have or privileges that the Jewish people have that no other nation on earth were given. And this is the part that literally we could make a sermon series out of. I could take every one of these uh, identifying markers and make a sermon out of it. Every one of them. But I can't. So I can only give you a brief description and we can talk about it just briefly. So number one, they are Israelites. Okay? Who were the Israelites? The Israelites descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 tribes or families multiplied and multiplied and multiplied into the millions and across millennia are now the Jewish people. The Jewish people. So he says they're Israelites. They came from Abraham, the first Jewish person ever who was not Jewish. He was from Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq. Abraham was an Iraqi. And God made the Jewish people out of an Iraqi. And so they are Israelites. What else? They have, uh, to them belongs the adoption. Okay, what is the adoption? Well, I, I can't leave this one without pulling a cross-reference. So in Exodus 4, this is Jesus through Moses exiting the people out of Egypt, and he's instructing Pharaoh, and he says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, you speak for me. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And this is the 10th the plague, the killing of the firstborn. Now watch this. In Hosea 1.11, this is a, a prophecy. He says, when Israel was a child, this is God speaking through Hosea, I loved him. I loved Israel, meaning the people of God. And out of Egypt... I called my son. Sound familiar? Because in Matthew 2, 13 to 15, when they had departed, that'd be the wise men, back to Christmas, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus adopted Israel as his firstborn son in the old covenant. But Israel was to picture a fulfillment and the fulfillment of this firstborn son was the firstborn son. And so Jesus is the son of God without equal. And interestingly, after Jesus rises and the, and the, the new covenant is established, who now, friends, is the adopted children of God? Didn't we just do this in Romans 8? We are adopted and by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. We are the new people of God, friends. We are the sons and daughters of God. The Old Testament Israelites were the people of God. We'll unpack that in the next three chapters. Jesus was the Son of God uniquely, 
And we, in Christ, are the sons and daughters of God through adoption. But they first, of all the nations, of all the people groups, of all the ethnicities, I don't like the word races because there's one race, the human race, but I like ethnicities. And so of all the ethnicities, God adopted one, the Jewish people. Interesting. And so theirs is the adoption. Theirs is the glory. Okay, that's the next one. What does that mean? Well, Exodus 12, I'm sorry, 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. God specifically showed the Jewish people his glory, time and time. Again, not only in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, but in the tabernacle and the temple itself. His brilliance and glory would show up. His power in the miracles performed would show up. His glory was on display in the Jewish community, not like any other nation. And so they got to see the glory. The glory of God showed up to this people again and again. So they are Israelites. They, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. Now, the covenants were promises made by God to the Jewish people. And here, uh, I'm going I'm to quote Doug Moo from the Biblical Theology Study Bible. Doug says this, in addition to the foundational covenant that God entered into with Israel at Sinai, the Old Testament mentions several other covenants with Abraham, Genesis 17, with Phineas, Numbers 25, 12 to 13, that's the priestly covenant, of David, uh, 2 Samuel 23, 5, which is your throne will be an everlasting throne and will never diminish. One of your sons will sit on your throne forever. And then the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Now, there are other covenants in the Bible. But to the Jewish people alone, God made specific covenants. The covenant at Mount Sinai, you keep this law, I will be your God, you will be my people. To Abraham, listen, of your descendants, circumcise them the eighth day. Of you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, pointing to Jesus. The Jewish people alone received the promises of God. But you know what's interesting? In Christ... All the promises of God are what? Yes and amen. For who? For who? For the church. Who is the church? The called out ones. The ones whom Jesus has made willing to believe. And so interestingly, we receive the promises that were originally made to Israel. Because we are the people of God. There's always been one people of God, friends. One people of God, two covenants. Always have been one people of God. My non-dispensationalism is showing through here, isn't it? <laughs> For those who know what that means, that's funny. For those of you who don't know what it means, don't worry about it. It's a theological joke. They were also given the law. Now listen, friends, God's character is displayed in the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, but there were 613 laws. And the Jews alone received these laws, which displayed God's character and God's uh, attributes, if you will, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his, 
his glory. They alone receive the law and no one else. The worship, this refers to uh, the, the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the temple worship, all picturing Jesus. Not only is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and, the, and the, the temple, but also the sacrificial system itself and he himself being the chief priest, the greatest of the priests. They were given the promises. This is the promises of God given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Okay? They were given the promises, the promises of a people and of a land. And then in verse 5, we have the patriarchs. The patriarchs, again, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then lastly, in verse 5, and from their race, I wish the ESV wouldn't have translated it race, but they did. From their ethnicity, according to the flesh, is the Christ. You know that's Jesus' last name, right? We didn't get that in the prophecy earlier, but he said, you shall call his name Jesus. And then later he told him, and his last name shall be Christ. Christ means Messiah. And so Jesus, Messiah, the Messiah was the promised one who would come and save his people from their sins. From their ethnicity, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, look, who is God over all. Now, if you want a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus, there it is. Man, is that clear. Who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. God's missionary heart, friends, is that he would send himself to save his people from their sins. The Jewish people And we'll get into this in chapters to come. The Jewish people had all of these distincting marks, these these distinction marks, these boundaries to keep them a people. And they were given specific promises that would be fulfilled. And all of these would find their great fulfillment in Christ, who is God over all. Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the chosen Messiah, who is God himself come to save his people from their sins. And this is the missionary heart of God, that he didn't just leave us in our sins. He didn't just leave us loving the darkness. He didn't just leave us in our mess, in our love affair with sin. He entered in to the very heart of darkness itself. On the cross, he called out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking the hell that we deserved for those three hours. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, friends, so that it didn't have to be poured out on us. And so while Paul can say, I wish that I myself could bear the wrath of God for the forgiveness of my people's sins, Jesus did bear the wrath of God to save his people from their sins. And we should celebrate that. Only if you realize what you've been saved from will you appreciate what you're saved into. And you've been saved from an eternity of punishment, just punishment for your sin, 
into a loving relationship with God and a loving relationship with his children, the church. And then God sends us to display his missionary heart to a lost and dying world. And so we are now his agents of reconciliation. We are now the people with the message. We hold in our hearts and prayerfully displaying with our mouths the power of God into salvation so that some might believe and be saved. And so we're going to celebrate communion right now. So if the communion men could get up and start passing around communion. The way communion works at Eternal City is that we celebrate communion every single week because we want to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We believe that the cross and what Jesus accomplished there was the centerpiece of human history. And without the cross, the curse is still on us. Because the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus was cursed on the cross for us bearing our sin, bearing our guilt, bearing our shame, bearing our punishment. And so we will sing a good gospel song together. We will hold the communion elements until the song is done. And then I will come back out after we're done singing and we will celebrate what Jesus has done for us together as one church united in Christ. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And we know that God is for us because of what he has done for us in Christ. Friends, we are safe and secure in Jesus alone. He is our hope. He is the solid rock on which we stand. And all other ground is sinking sand. And so make sure that you are standing on the solid rock of what Jesus Christ accomplished in his perfect fulfillment of the law, in his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection. And you trusting in him and his person and work alone for salvation. And this is what we hold. We hold the symbol of Jesus' body broken in the form of a cracker, a wafer, clearly not the body of Jesus, but a representative And then we hold a representative of juice that represents his blood. And the reason Christians take it into their bodies is we are individually saying, Jesus, body broken and bloodshed was for me. And I am going to act that out, that it was for me, and take it into myself. And we do it together as a church. Because when God saves us, he saves us into the body the body of Christ. And so let's celebrate what Jesus has accomplished for us by his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, we thank you for your missionary heart towards us. That, Father, you didn't leave us in our love affair with sin. You sent parents. You sent grandparents. You sent friends. You sent literature. You sent Bibles. You sent YouTube videos. (laughs) God, you got your word to us. The power unto salvation. And we thank you for the many ways that you save. 
but ultimately through the person and work of Christ. Father, would we never be ashamed of the gospel that has saved us? Would we never be ashamed to share the gospel that can save others? God, give us opportunities to live out our faith before others and to share the good news that Jesus is still saving sinners. And he will save them if they will but turn from their sin and believe. Jesus, give us opportunities to share this good news for your glory, for their good, and even for our enjoyment. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.